What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. This episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast is brought to you by Verizon Powerful Answers, the award where entrepreneurs have the chance to win up to $1 million by submitting their most innovative solutions in areas such as transportation, emergency response, and the Internet of Things. Last year's winners included a program for reducing organ donation wait time and a new type of eco-friendly charcoal. Please submit your idea by June the 18th, 2015 at verizon.com forward slash powerful answers. That's verizon.com forward slash powerful answers. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Thank you all for coming this evening. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, but I want to start with a question from me to all of you in the audience. It's a simple question. Um, if the answer is yes, please could you put your hand up? And it's simply this. Who here has ever had sex with someone without being married to them? Thank you very much. Good. Um, Well, I think that shows two things. Uh, First of all, it shows that quite a few people here have, um, which is a characteristic of our modern Western society. And secondly, it shows that was a slightly uncomfortable question, wasn't it? Um, And that's because we tend to think of sex as something private and of what consenting adults do in their bedrooms as their own business. In fact, sexual freedom and sexual privacy are things that we take for granted nowadays. It's central to our culture in all sorts of ways. Everyone can see that in the modern world, these Western attitudes to sex are distinctive. We think it wrong that in other cultures, the discussion of sex is censured, that people suffer for their sexual orientation, that women are treated as second-class citizens, or that adulterers are put to death. But our own society, for most of its history, was like that too. The central theme of my book is that how we think and feel about sex nowadays is the result of a huge revolution that began in the 18th century, the first sexual revolution, as I've called it. So I want to start tonight by taking you back to the pre-modern world, the world before 
that first sexual revolution. That's a world in which sex was emphatically not private. On the contrary, except within marriage, it was a public crime. And let me give you an example of what that meant in practice. It's an example from exactly 400 years ago, the winter of 1612. A man and a woman are arrested and taken before the magistrates of Westminster, quite close to where we are tonight. The names are Susan Perry and Robert Watson. And their crime is that they have had sex together without being married. Worse still, they have conceived a child. And for this, they're put on trial before a jury of 12 men and found guilty. The judges order them to be forever expelled from the society in which they live. They are taken straight from the courthouse to the local prison. Then they're stripped naked from the waist upwards and tied to a cart. And then they are whipped through the streets of Westminster until their backs are dripping with blood. They're paraded in public humiliation to the end of Westminster, the edge of the city, and there they are ceremonially, unceremoniously dumped. They are cut off from their friends, their families, their livelihoods. Their sentence is that they may never set foot in their hometown again. Now, this kind of sexual discipline and sexual punishment was a completely ordinary occurrence anywhere in the Western world before the 18th century. Every day, people were arrested, flogged, carted, imprisoned, fined, publicly humiliated. This was the law of the church and of the state, but it was not just imposed from above. It was enforced, it was animated by ordinary people. Because there is no professional police force in pre-modern England. There are no separate watchmen and constables. This is a system of communal self-regulation in which people collectively uphold standards that they believe to be essential. This picture from around 1700 shows the search night in which the constable and the watchman, who are the men with the staves, have gone down the strand looking for men and women having sex. And they found a couple and dragged them out into the street. And the caption explains that the couple pretend, proclaim, that they're actually married. It's fine, they're husband and wife. But clearly, they're not. And the watchmen are going to take them before a magistrate to be punished, if indeed they're not married. It seemed obvious to most people in this society, that illicit sex had to be repressed, had to be punished, had to be rooted out as much as possible because it angered God, because it prevented the salvation of those who engaged in it, and because it undermined social order. 
Now, obviously, plenty of women and women did have sex without being married. After all, thousands of them were prosecuted for it every year, and countless others clearly managed not to get caught. In addition, popular attitudes were also sometimes more tolerant than the official orthodoxy. As the leaders of the Tudor church complained in 1540, among many, fornication is counted no sin at all, but rather a pastime, a dalliance, and but a touch of youth. It is not rebuked, but winked at, not punished, but laughed at. So sexual discipline was clearly never perfect. It was also clearly biased. On the whole, women were more likely to be punished, wealthy and powerful people much less likely than their inferiors. But the same is true of all crimes in this society and probably in others too. And the important point is that the general trend over the centuries, from the Anglo-Saxons to the 17th century, was that sexual discipline was getting more intense and more successful. By the 1650s, men and women were being publicly executed for adultery in many Western societies. And this increasing persecution had a very tangible effect on people's behavior and on their ways of thinking. Most obviously, people had less and less illicit sex in this culture. We can trace a steady decline in the numbers of children born out of wedlock and equally in the numbers of women who are already pregnant when they get married. The idea that sex outside marriage was wrong and dangerous was clearly being internalized more and more deeply. And punishments were becoming more and more severe. One of the most affecting stories I came across in my research uh, was uh, the story of a woman called Susan Bounty from Biddeford in Devon. Susan Bounty may well have been the last person ever to have been executed for adultery in England. When she was convicted in the spring of 1654, she was already pregnant, or she was pregnant. And so humanely, the judges let her live in prison until she'd given birth. And then they came and they took the child away from her and they paraded her to the public scaffold and hanged her until she was dead. That is the world we've left behind. It was transformed forever by the first sexual revolution, which began around 1700 and which was one of the foundations of our modern world. I've tried to write a total history of this huge subject. Uh, but what I want to do in my talk this evening for you is pick out just some of the themes from that. Uh, and I've tried to illustrate them uh, using some pictures uh, from the book. Um, so I'm not going to tell you what this picture is for a few minutes. Um, it's not the rudest picture in the book, but it's certainly the oddest. And my first theme is the rise of sexual 
freedom. Because the most obvious uh, part of the sexual revolution was the collapse of public punishment and a huge surge in illicit sex. If we look at the middle of the 17th century, at how much sex people are having outside marriage, uh, the figures are very low. Only 1% or so of births uh, in in the 1650s is illegitimate. If you look forward to 1800, the situation has been completely transformed. In 1800, about a quarter of all firstborn children are illegitimate, and about 40% of women are already pregnant when they get married. The second striking uh, development is the birth of the modern idea of sexual freedom. In fact, in the 18th century, uh, sex becomes increasingly viewed not as dangerous and to be repressed, but to be celebrated as the greatest and perhaps even the most important pleasure in life. It's an attitude summed up in the great line by John Wilkes, life can little more supply than just a few good fucks and then we die. That's the ethos of uh, the 18th century celebration of sex in a nutshell. It encapsulates what the purpose is of life, uh, that it is to have a good time on earth and the centrality of sexual pleasure in that. And that poem was written in 1754, exactly 100 years after the execution of Susan Bounty. Now, sexual freedom doesn't come about in a vacuum. It's a product of the complete, the social and intellectual transformation of society at this time. In social terms, what's particularly important and particularly striking is the urbanization of Western society. The culture of discipline and of persecuting and repressing people for having sex outside marriage was developed in a society where almost everyone lived in very small rural communities, maybe just 100 or so people uh, in any place. And that's a kind of context in which the enforcement of social and religious and sexual conformity is fairly easy to maintain. But in the 18th century, London, which is at the vanguard of the development uh, that I'm talking about, explodes into the greatest city on earth. Um, At the end of the Middle Ages, only about 40,000 people live in London. By 1800, over a million do. It's the largest city in the world. And by 1850, most of the British population live in towns. So there's this tremendous shift from a largely rural, rural population to one living in major cities. And life in towns is very different. Life in major towns is very different. It allows for much greater opportunities for sexual adventure. It puts the uh, traditional forms of policing under increasing and impossible strain. And it provides for all sorts of new ways of living and communicating. In intellectual terms, this is equally a period of seismic change. The old way of thinking about sex that Western society was founded on until the 18th century was essentially fundamentalist. That's to say, the belief 
that there was only one right way of behaving, that God had laid that down in the Bible, and that all deviations from it should be punished, that God would punish societies if they did not uphold his law. But in the 18th century, people start to think very differently about God, about human nature, about the whole purpose of life on earth. They start to think of the deity as a much more benign and distant figure. They start to think of pleasure as an intrinsically good thing. And they start to distrust the text of the Bible as perhaps not entirely uh, God's word, but an amalgam of all sorts of um, uh, uh, texts, um, possibly with human influence. And they start to look for different ways of establishing what's right and what's wrong. And in doing so, they look increasingly to personal conscience, uh, to individual reason, and to what seems natural. Instead of looking to external authorities, to the text of the Bible, they increasingly uh, look uh, at uh, ways of thinking that individuals can determine for themselves. And this leads to a much more pluralist outlook. Now, the consequences are extraordinary. I'm going to tell you about the picture now. Um, The 18th century is uh, the moment at which sexual pleasure is not just celebrated intellectually or individually, but also communally in uh, many clubs up and down the land. And uh, this uh, object is from a sex club called the Beggar's Benison, uh, founded on the east coast of Scotland in the middle of nowhere um, in the 1730s. The members of the Beggar's Benison are a cross-section of respectable men from their society. Uh, Academics, lawyers, businessmen, uh, clergymen. What they do uh, is to gather together regularly, to get drunk, to sing rude songs, to read pornography to each other. Uh, They hire young women to come and strip off and display themselves in front of them. And then they go through various elaborate rituals for which they have objects like this specially commissioned. And uh, I'm afraid their central ritual involves this platter. (laughs) They stand around the platter, they whip out their members, and they collectively ejaculate onto it. You'll notice I can't really look at it myself. It always makes me a bit queasy. (laughs) So I'm going to flip forward. (laughs) Because it's not just libertines who argue for sexual freedom and celebrate it. It's not just extreme fringe manifestations like that where we can trace the advance of sexual freedom. It's equally something that goes to the heart of new ways of thinking about theology and philosophy. This, for example, is a man called Matthew Tyndall, great Oxford Don, fellow of all souls, who in 1730 published one of the most influential works of theology of the early 18th century, Christianity as Old as the Creation. And one of the central themes of that book is that traditional biblical norms in sexual as in other matters are but priestly inventions, 
They're old-fashioned. They're out of date. They're not appropriate to a modern state. Instead of the rules of the Bible, he says, we should think of morality using reason. Enjoying a woman, he says, or lusting after her, can't be said without considering the circumstances to be either good or evil. That warm desire which is implanted in human nature can't be criminal when perused after such a manner as tends most to promote the happiness of the parties and to propagate and preserve the species. So sex is probably um, mainly a pleasurable and a good thing. It depends on the circumstances. Or take one of the leaders of the Church of England. This is George II's Archbishop of York, Lancelot Blackburn. Uh, I often dined with him, reported Horace Walpole, the diarist. And when I did, his mistress, Mrs. Cruis, sat at the head of the table and hater, his illegitimate son, by another woman at the end of the table. <laughs> and Walpole goes on, goes on to relate how uh, Blackburn was such a man of the world that he had advised the Queen herself um, that uh, she was a wise woman, not to mind her husband having a mistress. That is uh, uh, the kind of attitude that reaches into the highest echelons of the church uh, by the middle of the 18th century. Charles, uh, sorry, George III's favourite clergyman, Charles de Guifardier, similarly referred in private to the Bible as a ridiculous, disgusting mass of precepts that people no longer read, and advised his protégés, above all, devote yourself to women. Now, it's no accident that all the celebrations of sexual freedom that I've um, given you thus far have been by heterosexual men, upper-class, propertied heterosexual men. The second theme that I want to draw out to you that's really important is that the rise of sexual freedom had very different effects for men and for women for heterosexuals, for homosexuals, for different classes and different races. Because the new permissiveness towards what was natural and the increasing stress on natural as the defining feature of what was ethically permissible also led to a sharper definition and abhorrence of supposedly unnatural behaviour. And that is most clearly visible in the increasing persecution from the 18th century onwards of same-sex behaviour. This is a sketch made by the French artist Theodore Jericho in the 1820s from life in London. And it quite possibly depicts the hanging of three men who've been convicted of sodomy. Before the 18th century, this would have been a rare occurrence. But throughout the 18th century, indeed up until the 1830s, men were regularly executed in England for sodomy. Between 1810 and 1835 alone, 46 men are judicially killed 
for this crime. Throughout the 19th century, thousands more were publicly humiliated in the pillory or sent to jail. Oscar Wilde's uh, punishment of two years at hard labor in 1895 is just the best known example. And indeed, in the 20th century, there are even more uh, prosecutions for, for, uh, of men for same-sex behavior. So a key effect of the first sexual revolution is to sharpen the abhorrence of homosexuality as unnatural. And yet, at the same time, the first sexual revolution also gives birth to new modern homosexual ways of living and associating and indeed of arguing for, sex, of, for sexual freedom uh, for gay rights as natural and private and harmless and tolerated by God in the same way as heterosexual freedom is. Let me give you a few examples of that. This is Edward Rigby, for my money, the first English icon of gay pride. Um, he was tried and convicted of attempted sodomy in 1698. He languished in jail for several years, and what's, one thing that's remarkable about him is simply this print. He had it commissioned and engraved um, just a few months after he's released from prison. It seems to show a very proud and unrepentant attitude. The other thing that's remarkable about Rigby is the deposition that I found of his arguments um, in private to men that he was trying to convince to sleep with him. Um, in November 1698, he, takes, he picks up a young man called William Minton and takes him to a tavern, takes him into a private room, plies him with wine, um, sits in his lap, kisses him, puts his hand in various places, puts his tongue in his mouth, and then says, shall I fuck you? <laughs> and Minton says, how can that be? Um, and Rigby explains that this is a perfectly normal thing, that all the great civilizations and all the great men of the past have done this. And indeed, he says, do you not read it in scripture? Jesus and St. John the Baptist, uh, sorry, St. John the, the Apostle, were lovers too. Another example, William Brown, whom I found in a different archive, a married man who went cruising in 1726 for gay sex. He found it in Moorfields in the dark. But then, suddenly, he finds himself surrounded by watchmen, shining torches into his face, arresting him, demanding what he was doing. And he was not ashamed to answer, so goes the police report. He was not ashamed to answer, I did it because I thought I knew him, and I think there is no crime in making what use I please of my own body. That's our modern conception of sexual privacy in a nutshell. And there we find it articulated already in 1726 uh, under great pressure um, by someone uh, in defense of same-sex relations. 
The first public defense of homosexual relations in English was published by a young clergyman called Thomas Cannon in 1749. He called it Ancient and Modern Pederasty Investigated and Exemplified. And there were two main lines of argument in this text. The first was that sex between men had been permitted and celebrated in many of the great civilizations of the past. Or as Cannon put it, every dabbler knows by his classics that boy love ever was the top refinement of most enlightened ages. His second argument was that homosexual lust was no different from any other kind. As he put it, unnatural desire is a contradiction in terms, downright nonsense. Desire is an amatory impulse of the inmost human parts. All of its manifestations were by definition natural. These are the same kinds of of arguments that were advanced by Anne Lister, who you see here, who in her private diaries, about 50 years later, set down the first extended defense in English of lesbian sex. Again, there are two main strands to her reasoning. First of all, that God would understand and forgive how she felt and behaved. Lord, have mercy on me and not justice. And the second was the great stress she laid on the naturalness of her emotions and actions. My conduct and feelings being surely natural to me inasmuch as they were not taught, not fictitious, but instinctive. And perhaps the most important example of all is this man, Jeremy Bentham. He's a very important example for two reasons. First of all, he's not self-interested in this topic. He's not gay. In fact, when he first starts thinking about um, homosexual relations, he is repelled by them. He continually talks of them as uh, disgusting, filthy, corrupted, detestable kinds of behavior. And yet, throughout his adult life, from the 1770s to the 1820s, he feels compelled to devote huge amounts of time and energy to arguing for the rights of same-sex behavior. Hundreds of pages, uh, and in many discussions with his followers. Bentham is the most systematic uh, approach to this question, and he, again, has three main ways of arguing. The first is that his reading of the Bible suggests God doesn't mind at all. Uh, The Bible doesn't prohibit it. Jesus himself, says Bentham, was clearly sexually very active with women uh, and probably also with St. John the Baptist. Um, Not entirely conclusive, he puts in a footnote, but probable. (laughs) The second point uh, that he articulates again and again is that sodomy is harmless. It's no more harmful than blowing your nose in public or eating oysters or smoking, you know, all things that other people find distasteful, but that's not a reason to kill people for it. And the third argument, in his view, is that sex of all kinds was clearly the greatest source of pleasure in the world. It was the most universal, the cheapest, the most easily accessible, the most intense, the most copious source of enjoyment, the most exquisite And he has these wonderful mathematical calculations where he tries to prove this. From a utilitarian point of view, uh, therefore, the increase of sexual freedom would be of huge 
permanent benefit to humankind, as he puts it somewhere. What calculation shall compute the aggregate mass of pleasure that may be brought into existence? This episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast is brought to you by Verizon's Powerful Answers Award. The award is a terrific opportunity for entrepreneurs and innovators to win up to $1 million by submitting their best ideas on how to solve some of the world's biggest problems. To find out more and to submit your idea, please visit verizon.com forward slash powerful answers. So I've talked a bit about how the effects of the rise of sexual freedom and the sexual revolution are somewhat contradictory for same-sex relations. And there's a very similar story to be told about its effects on women. On the one hand, the idea that sexual freedom is as natural and desirable for women as for men was born in the 18th century. Many of you will recognize who that is, Mary Wollstonecraft. She is one of the most prominent early exponents of free love. She, together with her lover, William Godwin, who in 1793 wrote in the first edition of his Political Justice that the institution of marriage is a system of fraud. And this view uh, comes to be quite prominent in radical circles after 1800. By the 1820s, the leading Republican Richard Carlyle, who also puts his views into practice with the feminist Eliza Sharples, uh, writes a series of best-selling publications advocating free love. As he wrote, there is nothing in sexual intercourse that has any relation to morals more than in eating or in drinking together. A true moralist sees no crime in what is natural and will never denounce an intercourse between the sexes where no violence nor any kind of injury is inflicted. Sex is the very source of human happiness and essential alike to health, beauty and sweetness of temper. We can trace that kind of thinking all the way through the 19th and into the 20th centuries, but it's always a minority view. The main effect of the sexual revolution for women was to establish a new commonplace that men were naturally, inevitably promiscuous, and that women were usually their sexual victims, that women, in fact, were inherently chaste and asexual. This is a picture illustrating Samuel Richardson's great novel, Clarissa, in which this uh, attitude is uh, taken to extremes, a very influential uh, fiction, and one of the ways in which these ideas spread in the 18th century is through these new forms of communication like the novel. Now, the effects of this new conception of female sexuality as essentially dormant can be seen everywhere in 18th and 19th and 20th century culture. It is, for example, one of the foundations of modern feminism, from Mary Astle to Mary Wollstonecraft to Josephine Butler into the 20th century. Most early feminists presumed that women were morally superior to men, and the epitome of that was the fact that they were more chaste than men. What was needed in the world, as Christabel Pankhurst put it in her great slogan of 1913, was votes for women and chastity for men. (laughs) 
Another effect of this new conception was a huge shift in attitudes towards prostitutes, towards fallen women as essentially victims of male seduction and social and economic circumstances. And so from the middle of the 18th century onwards, huge efforts are poured into the rehabilitation and rescue of women from white slavery. This is uh, from uh, some early propaganda of the first institution uh, to be founded in the English-speaking world for this purpose, the Magdalen House in London. In the background, you see a ragged whore. In the foreground, you see a woman in the uniform of the Magdalen House who's been transformed from that into a respectable young person. So the the movement to rescue prostitutes is one of the most phenomenal successes in terms of public interest and public engagement uh, of the uh, philanthropic movement of the 18th and 19th centuries. This is a picture of the interior of the Magdalen House's chapel. Uh, Here are the fashionable public come to show their benevolence and give their donations, and there, hidden behind a screen, but not hidden too much, are the penitent women themselves, whom everyone is keen to catch sight of. So there are many effects of the first sexual revolution on attitudes to female sexuality and on social policy and on feminism. But the most important effect, the main effect, is to place ever tighter restrictions on female conduct. And a tragic example of the juxtaposition between the new ideas of sexual freedom in the 18th century and how available they are in theory to women, and yet how difficult it is for them to be put into practice socially, is the tragic story of Jean Hume, the brilliant only daughter of Henry Hume, Lord Kames, one of the leading thinkers of the Enlightenment. That is Lord Kames. In the early 1760s, when she was only 16 or 17, and had just been married off by her parents to an army officer, Jean Hume embarked on a passionate affair with James Boswell. He was single, she was married. And when he began to get pangs of conscience about whether this was really a good thing and whether it was okay for him to meet with Lord Keynes and talk about philosophy with him and yet carry on an affair behind his back with his daughter, she, Jean, argued to him that they did nothing wrong. Here's an extract from Boswell's diary. She was a subtle philosopher. She said, I love my husband as a husband and you as a lover, each in his own sphere. I perform for him all the duties of a good wife. With you, I give myself up to delicious pleasures. (laughs) We keep our secret. Nature has so made me that I shall never bear children. So... No one suffers because of our loves. My conscience does not reproach me, and I am sure that God cannot be offended either. 
A decade later, when her husband divorced her for another affair, she declared likewise that she hoped that God Almighty would not punish her for the only crime she could charge herself with, which was the gratification of those passions which he himself had implanted in her nature. Those are exactly the same kinds of arguments that are being used to argue for male sexual liberty from this point onwards. But her father, the great scholar, the great moral authority, took the conventional view that adultery in a man, quote, may happen occasionally with little or no alienation of affection, but in a woman was unpardonable. After his daughter's divorce, he and Lady Keynes exiled her to France, and they never saw her again. So one of the chief effects of the first sexual revolution is that it lays the foundation for Victorian prudery and repression and the whole complex of desexualization of women uh, that we can see developing so clearly after 1800. My last theme is going to be the private and the public. I started by saying that the presumption that sex was a private matter was born in the 18th century. It's also the point at which the essential distinction between the private and the public is developed. And ever since, we've been grappling with the question of where exactly to draw the line in sexual matters. Unsurprisingly, the first and the loudest advocates of sexual privacy were naughty politicians. This is the Earl of Sandwich, the great gambler, the inventor of the sandwich, and also a great man about town. Um, It was nobody's business whether he was faithful to his wife or not. He harumphed in the 1780s, having spent decades sleeping his way around London. Other people should forgive my weaknesses when they do not interfere with my conduct as a public man. Public conduct and private character, it was now argued, were two distinct, unrelated things. Unfortunately for the politicians and public men, this was also exactly the moment at which the mass media were invented and came into being. The end of the censorship, the rise of the newspaper, and explosion of urban life created an unprecedented interest in the discussion and the publicizing of sex. So from this point onwards, sex also became ever more public. I can't resist showing you this picture, which is an 18th century bit of expose reporting, and I love the caption, simply says, Miss Roberts sitting naked in Lord Grosvenor's lap at the hotel in Leicester Fields. (laughs) Now, all the tricks of the modern mass media were born at the same time as the mass media. They were invented in the 18th century. For example, in the 18th century, people were endlessly, anonymously reviewing their own books. James Boswell, great example, would write something anonymously. He would dedicate it to himself, fulsomely, pages and pages in dedication at the beginning to James Boswell, great guy. And then he would review his own work anonymously in the papers and hail it as a book of great genius. (laughs) Or another great example, Mary Rudd, a courtesan of the mid-18th century, actually a lover at some point of Boswell's, 
also anonymously reviewed one of her own books and hailed it as, quote, one of the most spirited and at the same time the most elegant and temperate compositions ever written. (laughs) Although this may be regarded as a puff for the book, she concluded, it is, however, different from all other puffs in one respect. It is literally true. (laughs) And so... All this combines to make the 18th century equally the first age of celebrity memoirs. Let me give you one example. This is a celebrity uh, called Margaret Leeson. This is her in her prime when she was one of the leading courtesans of 18th century Dublin. A few years later, a few decades later, uh, she found herself down on her luck. So what does she do? Like any modern celebrity since then... She cashes in by writing her memoirs. In three volumes, over several years and hundreds and hundreds of pages, she spills the beans. She tells everything. Her early seduction, her lovers, their love letters, which she happens to have kept, stories about hijinks and high places, endless stuff. No wonder it was a great bestseller. And there were many like that. All this was very bad news for politicians who jilted their lovers. Um, By 1806, when the Duke of York foolishly cast off his mistress, Marianne Clark, without an adequate financial settlement, kiss-and-tell stories had become big business, and Miss Clark knew immediately what to do. She set to work with gusto. First, she colluded in several ghost-written pamphlets excoriating the royal family. Then, she penned and had printed 18,000 copies of a sensational memoir, complete with the Duke's love letters to her. And at that point, he cracked. Her reward, in return for the suppression of the text, which you see here, the burning of the memoirs, was a gigantic payoff, a lump sum of a million pounds in today's money, and a huge pension for life. There you see Mary Ann Clark walking off <laughs> with her cash. There you see her printer and her publisher saying, ooh, I've got 1,500, I shall make 1,000. And there you see the 18,000 copies being consigned to the flames. Um, the royals themselves were no better uh, when a few years later, um, George IV tried to divorce his wife, Queen Caroline, for infidelity she struck back with a huge campaign of public mudslinging about his own affairs. It all rather make, it all makes Charles and Diana seem rather tame. What you, what you have here is a bucket of Italian filth, which he is flinging upon her, because he, allege, he alleges that she has an Italian lover and that they travelled around the continent having sex. Do you'll notice that none of his mud is sticking, and she has a huge bucket which says... Filth from St. James's, filth from Portland Place, etc., etc., etc. And that is sticking to him quite a lot. The canniest sexual entrepreneur of all was the great courtesan Harriet Wilson, who cleverly maximized her profits through a combination of extortion and titillation. First, she announced the imminent appearance of her memoirs, which caused consternation amongst all her lovers, including the king. Next, she wrote privately to each of these men, threatening to expose him in particular unless he immediately sent her hundreds of pounds. And that's what this satire is depicting. There's the letter, there's its arrival in London. 
there's that man's wife saying, I wonder what he knows about Harriet Wilson. That tactic alone netted her thousands of pounds. Then her advanced publicity advertised which lovers were going to be featured in the memoirs, building up a huge buzz of anticipation. And finally, the work was published in instalments to huge success. I mean, it goes through 30 editions within a few months, bringing her many thousands more. Now, that is a successful marketing campaign. (laughs) So the rise of sexual freedom and the birth of the mass media at the same time produces the first age of sexual celebrities. And I want to end by taking you back to the moment at which this phenomenon really took off. I think I've identified um, exactly when that happens. Uh, This is the woman who was more responsible than anyone else, Kitty Fisher. In 1759, she was the most famous sexual celebrity in the world. Every move she made was chronicled in the newspapers. Everything she did was reported. But mainly, she had no control over this. This was her persona being exploited by the mass media. I'll give you an example. One day, March 6, 1759, she goes riding in St. James's Park. She falls off her horse. And this inspires months and months of public comment, songs, verses, pictures, pamphlets, entire books. Here's one of the prints. Here's a broadsheet. Horse and away to St. James's Park, etc., etc. Um... And here is a picture, a documentary etching, of some ballad sellers in London um, selling hawking ballads about Kitty Fisher. The man, as you see, has a fishing rod uh, to which they're attached, and he's crying out, Come, who fish in my fish pond? A hilarious pun on her name. And here is his family singing the ballads about Kitty Fisher. All this incensed Kitty Fisher so much that she did an unprecedented thing. She took out an ad in the main newspaper in London in which she complained about being constantly exploited um, by mean, ignorant, and venal wretches who impose upon the public spurious memoirs, spurious pictures, all these things that claim to be about her but are just made up. That's the first thing she does. And then, a few days later, she goes to see this man, Joshua Reynolds, the greatest portrait painter of his age, the greatest image maker of the 18th century. And together, they take her image in hand. They start to create endless pictures of her. She sits for these beautiful compositions, not just by Reynolds, but by many other artists. Those are exhibited to the fashionable world so that people can see her as she wants to be seen. Here she is as Cleopatra... Um, trying to impress Mark, or impressing Mark Antony by dunking a priceless pearl in wine. And there on the right is one of the mass market engravings that are immediately rushed out so that people in their thousands can buy pin-ups of Kitty Fisher, as they later then did of every other celebrity um, in their thousands. You could even buy this tiny, tiny image. It's about that big for a man to put in his pocket watch so that instead of carrying around your sex symbol on your mobile phone, 18th century man would keep her concealed in his pocket watch or in his snuff box and just open it whenever he felt like gazing upon her. 
I want to end with this image, which is the image on the front of my book. It's my favorite image of Kitty Fisher, and it epitomizes all these things. There we see her gazing out seductively at us. There we see another hilarious pun on her name, Kitty Fishing. But most importantly, look there. That is a reflection of a window. That reflects the window of the room in which she is standing. It reflects her life in a goldfish bowl. And very, very dimly, you can just see there, a crowd of people pressing in upon her, peering in, trying to get a glimpse of her. It's a wonderful epitome of the nature of modern celebrity and of the new world that was created by the first sexual revolution. Thank you very much. I'd be delighted to take questions. Yes? I wonder if you would agree that a consequence of the legitimization of sexual freedom is a disturbance in the balance of power between men and women. That ultimately, if at a biological level, um, women are monogamous and men are polygamous, uh, that women have, until the sexual revolution, tamed men by denying them sex without commitment. And although men uh, superficially are, perhaps are delighted by the sexual freedom now granted them, in truth, they get a bit tired of freely banging their bongo drums all over the world. <laughs> and they actually want to be tamed by women and made chaste. Uh, I can't speak for all 18th century men, but <laughs> I, th I think there is a very important point that you're making there, which is, uh, is that um, from the 18th century onwards, um, women derive authority from the notion that they are more chaste uh, and more ethical than men and that men should learn how to behave from them. And that's absolutely uh, one of the central foundations of... Uh, feminist thought about uh, women's authority. So also, this idea about uh, women being more chaste uh, comes out of one of the most remarkable developments uh, of the 18th century, which is a completely unprecedented rise of female voices in the public sphere. Um, before the 18th century, actually, uh, everyone agreed in public that women were much more lustful than men. It's a central commonplace of classical thinking, of biblical thinking, of medieval thinking, of early modern thinking. And the idea is quite simple. Uh, it is that lust is a dangerous passion that all human beings have within them, uh, but women are weaker than men, and so they're less able to bridle their passions and less able to control their lust. That idea is challenged only in the 18th century and one of the chief ways in which it's challenged is by the rise of women as writers, as novelists, as poets, um, which, uh, uh, and philosophers, which, which, which happens then. And when they talk about courtship and love, uh, they have a very different conception of how that works. And they say, well, actually, it's always men chasing us. It's men chasing women. 
and uh, they are the more lustful sex. So I, I think there's a, a very interesting uh, truth in what you say. Thank you. Hi. I was um, thinking it's a nice reflection um, and kind of love and warm where all is equal, where you have the same class and socioeconomic status. I was just wondering about the consequences, perhaps on the lower classes, with respect to sexually transmitted diseases and the burden of... Um, death through pregnancy, for example, which was probably one of the highest causes of death in young women of that time. Um, and then moving on to today, that although it's, I can see why you might question morality with regard to something that's seen as natural, and where we have choices, are con- contraception, and we are able to make those choices, then fine, but um, maybe you would question morality with the consequences of that action, which is what you really need to think about. Yes, absolutely. Um, but I, I think that the way in which the 18th century, the first sexual revolution, creates a new way of dealing with that is that the burden starts to be placed on individuals to decide what's right and wrong. And the, 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 the clear earlier message that you simply had to um, distinguish between sex within marriage and sex outside marriage, and then you knew what was right and wrong is replaced by a much more complicated way of thinking about consequences and consequences for the individual and to what extent what two people do in private has ramifications for other people and so on. And, and, and those are exactly the things we still grapple with today. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, Sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.